Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast. Today, my guest is a developer. He's the sole creator of a niche iPhone app called iReal Pro. Now, if you're involved in music, if you play music, that kind of stuff, you already know about this app because it's really popular within that community. But if you're not, you probably don't really know about it. Now, the interview with him really, really interesting, and it reminded me a lot of when I was in college and I was studying creative writing. And I remember we took a lot of classes about the craft of writing, the fancy, like all the the fiction type stuff. And then towards the end of my college career, I think it was senior year, I was taking an advanced creative writing course. And the teacher brought in a guest. And the guest came in and they basically started talking about how to write pop literature. Now, of course, everybody in the class kind of rolled their eyes and because, of course, we were writers. We wanted to write like fiction, you know? And They were telling us about if you want to actually make money writing, what you need to do is find a niche and then just start writing and just write so much in that niche because that will be your audience. And that is exactly what Massimo has done with iReal Pro because he has created an amazing application that has viral growth, but not viral in the way that like people tweet about it, they email it to their friends. This is in person. One of your band members has it, tells everybody else, and then everybody has to download it because it's just so good. So if you're thinking about making applications, you want to make a lot of money for it. You can either try to compete with Apple, who's making such amazing feature-filled apps and releasing them for free, which who can compete with that? Or you find your niche and you just nail it. So this interview is going to help you find your niche. So I'm not going to talk anymore. That's enough for the intro. We're going to get right into it. Here's Massimo and thanks for listening. So today on the show, I have Massimo, who is the creator of iReal Pro, which is a music book software. Actually, Massimo, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your software? Yeah, hi. So um, it's a music book and slash play along application uh, that I made for uh, iOS, uh, Mac OS X, and Android. It started out as a music book, um, precisely chord charts uh, more than um, sheet music. Um, as a jazz bass player, I often needed uh, to have the, the chords of, the, of, of popular songs and standards readily with me, and to carry all those books was always a pain. So um, when the iPhone and the iPad came out, I had the idea of um, making a, uh, an application with those books in them. And uh, the iPhone screen obviously is too small to actually read music, so just the, having the chords would uh, would have been enough. So I made an app that contained hundreds of, of jazz standards in just the chords, and uh, it quickly became a success. Uh, so um, I had an idea of not only using the app uh, at at shows or during jam sessions, but also using it at home when you practice. Um, so I created um, uh, a play-along feature that reads these chord charts and creates um, um, basically a virtual band. Now, how, how long after the iPhone came out did you release the first version of this? So uh, iOS 2.0, which was the one that was open to the App Store, came in 2008, and that's when I started buying books about reading. So by the end of, I'm reading about iOS programming. So by the end of 2008, uh, I had learned to program a little bit and I made this first very basic version of, of the app. So now, end did of you have any, oh, sorry. Did you have any programming background before that? Um, well, when I was a kid, 12 years old, I had learned to program in basic on my Commodore 64 and uh-huh. now I'm, I'm dating myself with this. <laughs> Basic is a little bit different than Objective-C, that's for sure. Uh, quite different, quite different. And then then I studied music um, all throughout college and all of that. So um, I was not 
directly involved with any computer programming besides making a few websites. So back in the late 90s, so I learned HTML to do that. I was always involved with computers, you know, using the softwares and stuff like that. But I took up Objective-C programming in, in 2008. So Objective-C was the first, like, serious language that you sat down and studied to, like, create stuff then? Yes. I bought this book by Stephen Koch, Objective-C. Uh, programming in Objective-C, right? Yes. I think the one. Yeah, back in the day, you recommended that book to me because I, I had struggled with so many different ways of trying to learn coding because I had right. tried multiple books. I tried The Big Nerd Ranch, which I know is really popular. I even took a mm-hmm. course at the NYC, and it just didn't work. And then you recommended the programming in Objective-C. And for me, with no programming background, that was the first book that didn't require that and that actually got through to me. Exactly. It, it's, it covers there, – there's now a – version two of the book but it's still very good <clears throat> as it um, starts starts out very basic without even going into the iphone sdk just simple applications to learn the basics of the language which is what you need to, when you start exactly because i think one of the most important distinctions that i learned from reading this book is that there's a difference between programming and creating applications for iPhones because like I finished uh, the Stephen Cochin's book and I could understand Objective-C and I understood how it worked, but that didn't mean that I could necessarily create an iPhone app. And so I started right. taking uh, the Stanford class, I think it was, on iTunes, mm-hmm. um, and that was yeah. really like how to create the apps. Right, right. So, yeah. Objective-C is, is the basic language, and, and, and it's very, it's, there's not much to it, really. There's a few basic rules and a few commands, and, and it's mostly about the structure of the language. And then uh, Apple engineers have built an SDK using this language, which provides us with an API, as it's called, uh, where all the commands that simplify life to programmers when you want to make an app for an iPhone that you can use this 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 uh, this SDK and this API that Apple engineers have made to uh, you know make very sophisticated things if you think about it even making a button that changes state when you tap it if you had to build it from scratch designing everything pixel by pixel would be a huge job huge yeah, yeah, yeah. and i think the the best way uh, oh, just for everybody listening, SDK is Software Development Kit. So basically, it's yes. like a bunch of pre-written code that you can call to when you're writing apps. So um, right. yeah, the, the best example is like if you want to use a keyboard, uh, you can write one yourself if you want to and have a whole custom thing, but you could just type in a, a bunch of code or a, a piece of code, and then it'll put the keyboard in for you. Like You don't have to write the keyboard every single time. And there's, there's a bunch of stuff throughout the system that's like that. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's why that's why it's so fun to program for iOS because this SDK that Apple has made is so powerful that it makes it really simple <clears throat> to make an application. Now, now is that Coco or is Coco something different? Coco, um, yeah, Coco is it, it's basically the name of 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 the latest iteration of. of of the iOS and OS X SDK, um, the, the used to be called uh, what was it before? Coco. It had another name in the older days. Of, Did it? Of, uh, I don't even realize it. I don't remember this. Before, before iOS. Yeah. Uh, it slips my mind now. Like on on early versions of uh, of the Mac OS X, it had a different name, and it was still. Objective C based, but it it's um, it had some yeah, it was different, more complicated. Yeah, well they closer they to, closer to C, and they built it specifically for the iPhone. And and I think a lot what a lot of people don't realize too is a lot of these. I mean, the language doesn't change, but it's the software development kits that can really really change. And I remember when I was learning Objective C, one of the big mm-hmm. new things that was in Objective-C was automatic reference counting, which I know when you yeah. learned it, there was not automatic reference counting, right? Right. Which yeah, at first, uh, you have to 
yeah, when I learned it back in 2008, I, I learned how to manage memory. <clears throat> Basically, when you create objects and variables, you have to always be careful to release them not, so not so you not you don't fill the memory of your of your phone with wasted uh, objects and variables. But um, but then the SDK developed, and now it does it for you, so you don't have to worry about it. So it gets simpler and simpler. Yeah, I was able to earn, uh, learn a little bit about like reference counting stuff. And once you get the hang of it, it's not that car that's that hard. And I know a lot of people that had to do it were like, yeah, oh, no, it's, it comes to second nature, but it's nice not to have to anymore. I do know that. Yeah, it's good to know it. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. So you had mentioned that the very first version of, uh, iReal Pro was really basic. Um, what did that look like when, when it first came out? It was basically, um, a list, like a, t- as a table view, as it's called in iOS, you could scroll and it had all the titles of the songs. And when you tapped on it, it would show a chord chord chart. And um, with this, from this screen, you had a couple of functions that you could transpose it to another key, and you could share it, you could print it, and email it in PDF format to somebody else. That was the first iteration, which uh, was fairly simple. Looking it looking at it now but back then I, it felt like a huge achievement to get it out there oh yeah definitely yeah. now when when you evolved that based on the feedback that you got like how did you get in touch with the people that were using your application to kind of decide what new features to add or was it something that you came up with features on your own how, how did that system work for you um i i always um value the, f- uh, the feedback of my users because um, I, I use my app myself all the time, so it's it's. Which, by the way, it's a very important thing. If you make an app, make sure that you're you're using it, so you know exactly how it feels and and what what its functions are. But um, yeah, I, I immediately got feedback from from all the users that a lot of people loved it, and uh, they started writing immediately with recommendations. And one of the first recommendations was well came out of people complaining that the chords in their uh, they didn't think they were correct chords so i i (laughs) of course yeah so i um i made it i made the charts editable so i I created an editor so people could change chords or create their own chord progressions and so therefore they could no longer complain about wrong chords so it was a a way to solve a a support problem <laughs> in a way. And yeah. now when you're adding all of these features, a lot of times you're doing stuff that you've never done before. What was it, what's the learning process like for, okay, you, you've thought up a feature, but you don't know how to do it. What's your next step? Like, what do you, how does that work? Um, <clears throat> I start, well, searching the internet is always the, 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 the the easiest way because there's so much information there and there's so many tutorials and so many examples of apps or, or snippets of apps. GitHub is full of, of um, pieces of code that you can integrate into your app to make it uh, do things that, that you're interested in. But I usually, when I think of a new feature, I I try to jot down on on paper um, how would how they would work um, to the, the the user interface and the, the user interaction how how they are structured and what they do and then I just let it simmer in my my mind for a while and and see what how I can solve the problem and then I just start coding I often. I don't use a, a very advanced way of, of creating flow charts and, and, and you know software architecture because I didn't I never studied uh, software development at university or anything so I don't know these fancy ways of of engineering software I, I, I often dive in it might take a little longer than it would take other people other programmers probably but it kind of works for me and, and I like going like this head on first and then I have to sometimes go back and rewrite and, and change things as as I go along. But it's 
it's fun. It's a lot of fun, actually. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think a lot of people uh, avoid starting things or trying new things because they think they have to learn how to do it or they have to study it or they they think, okay, well, I didn't study computer science, so I can't get into programming. Or And really, the the best way to do this stuff is just to start writing code. And that's why when you have these online resources that teach you how to code, like Codecademy, they start off by having you write code and seeing what it does, because that's seriously the, the best way to learn. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's fun and inspiring too, when you write a few lines of code and you see it immediately appearing and, and doing something that then you feel like, oh, I can do this. And then, you know, you evolve. Many times I've <clears throat> Actually, every few months I go back and I re- completely rewrite parts of the app because I, I realize how badly I wrote it. Because as you go, you learn. That sounds painful. <laughs> well, refactoring all that code. Yeah, but it's in a way, it's, 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 I find it very fulfilling to clean. I know, I remember reading the uh, Steve Jobs book, how he wanted the, the circuit board inside of the computer to look beautiful even though nobody would see it and <clears throat> i kind of feel the same like i want the code to be nice and clean and and, and well easily re- readable from the programmer even though nobody but me will see because yeah and that helps in the future when i build something new i've had this experience of writing and rewriting a snippet of code so the next time i write something similar i i've i've experienced these few steps already so and if I have to fix something now, the code is much easier and readable, and, and so it all help. It's, it's all helpful. Yeah, and, and every year at, at Apple's WWDC event, the developers conference, they're always mm-hmm. announcing some new way to do something, and I'm sure that has you a lot of times going back and and cha- or going back and changing your old code to do things the new, better way, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's. Uh, Plus, also, you have to always deal with something new, you know, mm-hmm. iPhone 5, larger screen, okay, iPad, uh, retina display, iPhone retina display. There's always something new. You, you have to scramble and go back and, you know, try to catch up with Apple. Talk to me about how much work it is to support different screen sizes, because I know that a lot of people don't really, like, they don't understand the extent of how much work it is because Android is insane because there's so many screen sizes. Like yeah. when, when you're talking about Apple changing things and they make something retina and they make their iPhone five a, a little bit bigger. I don't think people realize quite how much work goes into it. So what's, what's the process like when you learn that, okay, Apple's coming out with a new screen size, go. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Well, first of all, you download the, the new SDK software development kit that Apple's have provided to us our developers way before the actual device comes out on the market. So we can see what it's going to look like in the simulator on, on the computer. And then you see that every look, everything looks messed up. It's all terrible. Yeah. yeah. So you have to adjust things. But in reality, there's, there are three screen sizes that I work with. The, the iPhone 4, the iPhone 5, and the iPad. Because the iPad and the iPad mini have the same resolution and uh, all the retina devices have the double the resolution so all you need to do is create uh, the graphics as uh, twice the resolution so you don't really need to change any of the code same for the iPhone you have the the iPhone 3GS it has non retina screen and the iPhone 4 has the same resolution but with retina screen so the code doesn't change it's only your graphic assets that have to be doubled in in size, so really, you have. I'm dealing with three screen sizes, which is not bad at all compared to Android, which is, which I really don't know how many screen sizes there are. I don't. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds. So in Android, really, you have to estimate. You have to design things so they are elastic in a way. You set what they call struts and 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 auto resizing. Uh, things to your buttons and your elements on the screen so you're hoping that on a larger screen they will look okay but i can only test you know 10 or so devices 
so the rest is a guess and hoping that it's going to look okay. And even 10 is a lot. Like if you imagine the average person having 10 different Android phones, that's, that's insane. Yeah. But I mean, as a developer, you're expected to have that so you can test it. And if one yeah. person's Android phone doesn't work, they're going to get mad at you. Right, right. And it's not only the screen size in Android, it's the density. On, on, iPhone, on iPhone, we have two density. There's non-retina for the, the, the iPad mini, the first iPad mini and the old iPad and old, old iPhone. And then there's retina, which is exactly twice the resolution. So really, it's very easy to calculate. But on Android, you have uh, low density, medium density, normal density, large density, extra large density, extra, extra large density to deal with. And this is all, they all have different number of pixel per inch. So it's a total nightmare to trying to figure out how things are going to look on this, on the different screens. And it really doesn't help that Android users don't spend as much in the, on apps as uh, they do in the Apple store. Right, right. It's it's getting a little bit better now, but still the Android, a lot of the Android market is of low-end devices for, for people who just need a phone and, and, you know, they go into the AT&T stores and then the salespeople give them the, the cheapest Android device. So they will never actually buy apps or, or anything like that. So they, there's a huge chunk of Android market, which is doesn't really count for, for sales. Yeah, I think when I first got my iPhone, uh, I started, my first iPhone was a 3GS. So I, I got into it a little while ago, but I wasn't one of the very early adopters at all. I was holding on to my palm. Um, yeah. But when I first got it, I, I was like, okay, well, I spent a bunch of money on the phone. I, I'm not going to spend money on apps because like the mindset at the time was just like, it's part of the phone. They're not separate things. And eventually right. I, I realized how many amazing paid applications there were. And like, if you were willing to pay money for software, like you can get some really cool stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And and now early on, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh no, go ahead. You said early on. Early on, um, there was this gold rush. I was lucky enough to start programming back then when the big software houses were not investing money in mobile software on iOS nor Android. So <clears throat> we heard this, all these awesome stories of, of individual or small development uh, software developers by themselves and making a lot of money with simple apps. But uh, that has, has changed a bit now as, um, as the big software company have realized the, the huge market of available on the mobile on mobile devices, so now they are investing and in, in, in making amazing apps for the iPhone. So the quality of the software has really gone way up. Well, I think that mobile is going to be uh, well. At least for me, mobile is the number one way that I pretty much interact with my technology. I mean, I'm lucky because I spend a lot of time in front of a computer, and that's how I like mm-hmm. to interact. But I think for a vast majority of people, and almost for myself. Majority of the time, you're you're on your phone. If you're out and about, like that, that's yeah. how you're interacting with technology. Yeah, more and more, I start you know buying tickets on the phone, researching. You do more and more the things that you used to do solely on the computer. You can do them on, on yeah. your phone. I think the biggest opportunity for people trying to get into apps right now is to try to find services that you can only do on a computer, and then bring that yeah. to mobile. If you're able to successfully yeah. do that, and, and you can find one that hasn't been done yet, bam, that, that's your idea and that's golden. Because yep. I think, I think yeah, people yeah. try to like find unique, crazy stuff that's never been done before. And really, you, you, you can hit it big, but it, that's just kind of a gamble. Like Finding the stuff that's already established, you know there's a market there, and being like, okay, I'm bringing this to mobile. Bam, you, you have a huge, huge business. Yeah, that, that's one. And I think the other one is finding niches, niches that have... Uh, they have not been uh, touched by the by the mobile software. Like for me, what I do, my app is kind of a niche app for for musicians in particular, more more towards jazz musicians and students who practice. So it's not a huge market. So I'm not gonna have competition from Apple's GarageBand and 
and software like that. You know, Apple is giving away GarageBand for free now. And then if you try to make an, an app that is similar to GarageBand, it's, you're going to have a tough time. So, yeah, because you definitely don't have the same amount of money as Apple. <laughs> no, absolutely not. And the I, sources, they can they throw engineers at, at an app. Exactly. Like nothing. I didn't mention this at the beginning, but I am extremely impressed with your application. One of the things is like I, I don't know music that much, so it's not something that I would use. But I remember when you were mm-hmm. showing it to me, like you you put in the sheet music, and then it the you, the application plays like custom music, and it sounds like a real band. It's yeah, it's fantastic. How how did you get it to just sound so fluid when really it's like, uh, I mean, when a lot of people I think talk, think about like you have the software that reads back uh, text that you mm-hmm. put in, like it's a mechanical voice or like you think of MIDI's when you right. think of computer generated music, but yours is not at all. Right. Right. <clears throat> well, I think a few, a few things helped me do it right. One, I, I'm a professional musician. I've spent 20 years studying and performing music. So I can, I can hear what sounds right and what sounds human what sounds like a real band so that that was very helpful and <clears throat> some of the aspects that make music sound uh human is randomness and imprecision because uh humans don't play like robots there's always going to be slight I, I call them mistake but they, they don't sound like mistake. They sound like human, like inflection of the voice. Mm-hmm. And when you talk, it, 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 it's not wrong, but it's not precise as a computer. So it's a chaos it's, it's, theory. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> so I, I added uh, small, small values of, uh, value, values of randomness. And, 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 and for example, the drummer would play a groove, but it's not exact metronomic has small variation that it's they're not perceived as a mistake to the ear but makes it sound like what a real drummer would play plus i i um, i introduced a lot of variety like the bass player wouldn't play exactly the same bass line constantly it makes small variation embellishment notes and all of this together if you do that on all the instruments it makes it sound quite human you know yeah, just like a real band, even though you're just plugging in the chords and having them go. Right. Yeah, it's you just you can type in your chords, simple or, or sophisticated as you want, any kind of meter and different styles, and then the app reads them and, and generates a, a accompaniment base for you. It's very helpful when you when you're at home practice. Mm-hmm. So when you show up at the actual rehearsal with the band, you know the music very well. You don't have to bother them and make, make your bandmate play the song over and over and over until they're bored to death. <laughs> That's really handy. Um, yes. So your application has been out for a long time, which means you've seen a lot of different versions of iOS. And I know one of the yes. big questions when there's a new version of iOS come out is how old of the iOS versions do you want to support? Because each older version that you continue to support means that there's less you can do with the new stuff that Apple creates. How, yes. how far back do you support and how, how do you make that decision? Um, Apple doesn't offer any clear statistics on um, installation base. Well, they haven't historically Actually, this at the end of last year, they started um, telling how much of iOS 7, how large the, the installation base was. But that's kind of a new thing. But we're, I think we're very lucky because um, Apple has been very good at providing the newer iOS to older devices. So, and and in, in I would say that that a phone you don't keep the same phone for more than three years so with that in mind it's very easy for a developer to stay with the latest um, ios therefore supporting all the latest features that apple uh, has developed and, and, and provides for you with a new ios i have always stayed with basically two prior versions of ios because 
my user base it's also comprised with uh, of um, a lot of um, older musicians which are not prone to updating their hardware very much. So I have users with the original iPad and with old iPods. So right now we are in uh, iOS, uh, iOS 7 and I'm supporting back to iOS 5. So in my code, I have to write a lot of if statements where I check wh what um, version of the app we're running on and, and then present slightly different features depending on what device and what uh, iOS we are on. So it's, it's a little bit of a, of, of a pain to do that. But as of this year, basic, actually in a couple of months, I'm, um, I'm going to um, make the app iOS 7 only. And that's going to make my life much easier. Also because... Uh, as of last summer, Apple has uh, provided a new features in the app feature in the App Store where people with older devices can download older versions of an app. Yeah, that, that kind of got brushed over. That was a big deal. That's exciting for me. It's huge. Cause, so right now, actually, in this week, I'm, I'm finishing up the, the final touches on the last version of, of my app that I'm gonna support iOS 5. I want to have a very nice, stable version that works on the old iPad, and then I'm just going to leave it at that and start supporting iOS 7. But people on iOS 5 will still be able to download a very good and stable uh, version of my app from forever, as long as they have their old iPad. So that's great. It's really good. Yeah, I think that's a smart way to do it. Um yeah. You said that you were going to just only support 7 coming up. So that means they're going to drop support for both 5 and 6 at the same time? Yes, because really 6, uh, it's, there's no iPad that is stuck on 6. The yeah. iPad 1 runs iOS 5, but from the iPad 2 and up, they all run iOS 7. So there, it's not an issue. And, and as far as iPhone, the only... Um, devices that are stuck on iOS 6 are the um, the iPhone 3GS, which is now what four more than four years old, and the old iPod. Uh, what is it? The iPod 4, which is three years old, but the iPod is no longer a, a huge selling device. So it's, we're talking about very small. Uh, number of users. I was looking at at, at numbers. Just this morning, from uh, a company called Mixpanel.com, and uh, iOS seven is today at eighty three percent. iOS six is at fourteen percent, and and the older ones at two percent. Yeah, Apple's really good about getting people to upgrade. That's for sure. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah, those numbers compared to Android. Uh, Android is like. Less than ten percent on their newest version, or or something. I, yeah, I'm just yeah, making that up, but something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 quite a joke. It's, it's a problem. I'm supporting on Android. I'm supporting uh, Android version two point two, which is now uh, two point two years old. Yeah, that's crazy. Thirty three, thirty about thirty percent of Android devices are still on an Android two point three. Wow. Uh, do people get because mad actually, when you drop support for the older ones? Like, have you gotten, like, angry emails? On not, on, not on iOS, because they can still download older versions now. Mm -hmm. and on Android, I, I started with 2.2, and I have not dropped anything yet, because I have so many users on, on those old devices yet. I cannot really do it. I have to keep supporting old devices. Yeah. yeah. How often do you release a new version of the app? Uh, I try to do small incremental uh, updates. <clears throat> I found that, that people stay engaged when they see uh, that I'm constantly updating the app. And I find, this a, uh, find it a very useful thing to keep your users engaged. Some, some people don't use the app that much, but when they see, oh, there's an update, let me see. Oh, yes, that's a very good app. And they talk about it with their friends. And, you know, it keeps the app in the awareness of the user. Obviously, you don't want to overdo it where every couple of weeks they have to download your app again. That becomes a pain. 
Now, but, how does automatic updating affected that? Because in the past, you used to have to manually go it, and then you notice like, oh, there's a new version of this. And right, now right, I, right. I don't see that anymore. Do you see that it's had an impact? Um, I, I don't know yet. I can't. It's hard to it's tell, hard to say. obviously. Yeah, but I've, I've changed how the app works. I've added a, an in-app um, little notice now when I... When there is an update and, and people open that new update for the first time, I say, hi, there's a new update and these are the new features because they might not even notice otherwise. Mm. They, they won't know to look in that new place though, if I've added something. So I've had to add that manually. Before, when you had to download the updates manually, uh, you would see a list of what's new. Mm-hmm. Now you kind of have to go look for it. So I thought it would be useful to add it within the app itself. Yeah, every once in a while, I'll go into the app store and view the recently updated ones and see if there's anything interesting. But for the I, most part, it just, yeah, just does it by itself. Yeah, and, and and we are geeks. We do it. Most people don't go in, in the app store and look for what's new in, in, in their apps. They don't care. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I always forget that. Like when I was working at uh, The Verge and Laptop Magazine, like we'd always... Yeah. I, I'd always have to cut back on my assumptions that, okay, somebody doesn't know this. I need to go and explain how this actually works or not. Everybody is on their phone all the time. And I like, it's easy to make an assumption that everybody has their phone at all time. And a lot of people do, but not necessarily in the way that you or I or other tech journalists do. And it's, it's interesting. It's funny. Yeah, Yeah. It's very interesting. So you start living in your own world. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, when I was in retail, when I was working at Hugo Boss, I was all about clothing. And really, I don't care about clothing. But when you're surrounded by it all the time, that's, you just right. get in that mode. Yep, yep, yep. So I know that uh, your app, the iRails Pro, has been written up in uh, a few good publications. I know that both Time and Wired. Um, what's your kind of strategy for getting people to know about your application and getting press? Um. I think I'm a little bit of an exception here. I've been very lucky that word of mouth has done amazing things for me. I remember the first day that the app came out. It was, I think, December 1st, 2008. Um, I had done no press, no... I, I didn't have a website. I did not have a... I, even, I don't know if Twitter even existed back then. I didn't have a Twitter or Facebook page or anything. No social media. And um, the first day I get, well, the day after I got a report of sales from Apple and I saw, um, and I saw five sold. I was like, wow, without even doing any promotion, I had five. And then I looked better and it said five in the US, three in Germany, four in Japan. So I had actually sold 55 on the very first day. So That's awesome. I was, I was so happy. It was very exciting. But after that, it, it was um, a, um, a steady growth. And I actually never did any advertisement because uh, word of mouth was so powerful for me. It's, it's an app that you use while you play often. So a band of four musicians, one guy will have it and the other three are, are going to be asking, what are you doing? What are you looking at? You're not looking at sheet music. You're looking at your iPhone. So it just spread itself. You know, it's not like an app that you use by yourself, you know, in the subway or when you're at home, it's, it's, you use it often with other people. So it spread itself. Yeah. It's inherently viral, but not in a way that a lot of viral things are because it'll be like, get it free. If you revert, if you refer like five of your friends or something like that, and this is like in person, your friends have it. They think it's great, so they're telling you about it. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. Now, how did That's, you how did you grow your online presence then? Because you were like you said that you didn't have a website or anything really when it first launched. I know that you have a, a website now and you maintain. How did you grow or meet those needs, or what made you decide to do it uh, to do that? Well, I mean, I've, I've learned everything slowly it's been five years now so uh, just following other trends reading a a ton of articles what other developers do 
So <clears throat> I started a Facebook account for the app. I made a website. I made a Twitter account and started tweeting. And then I uh, did some promotion here and there. I gave out few, a few free apps and stuff like that. But I've never done like, um, a, again, I haven't spent money on advertisement on Facebook or, or something like that. I know a lot of people do it, but having a niche app, it, it, it wouldn't really pay off because yeah. it's such a, I have such a specific market that really only word of mouth um, would reach. Well, you have to find the right way to talk to your niche. Like you have a niche that isn't going to be looking at Facebook ads or is it going to be like clicking Google AdWords particularly, whereas for other people it would. It it all is a matter of understanding the niche that you're in. Yeah, exactly. If I put put an ad on on, on Facebook, I might reach, yeah, one million people, but really only 0.5% are potential customers. So I, I... it's, their turnaround is not it's it's not good it doesn't make sense you know the, the amount of money that you pay in advertisements is not going to return so um, I was lucky to have um, uh, some specialized blogs pick up my app and review it and that's very helpful once you music blogs and, and, and music education blogs some schools uh, now require my app as as in their curriculum. So those are all things that help. But again, I was lucky and it kind of just happened. Yeah. Now I think that's really important is getting into the blogs, especially if you have a niche application. And one of the things that Apple does is every version that you release, you get the free promo codes. Um, Have you used those strategically to try to get press or is that kind of, they've, they found it themselves and wanted to write about it. A little bit of both. Um, I, I, I haven't, done it a lot but i did it early on send when i, when I first made the, the the new the feature that the play along feature when i added that that was kind of huge i send it to a lot of music blogs and, and some of them picked it up i sent free code and they downloaded the app and reviewed it and just last year i did a big um, big redesign of the app I, up until last year i had done everything myself um, the the programming the design everything but last year i hired um um a professional designer nick ditmore from uh, 10 speed lab and he completely redesigned the app and the website the, the logo everything so now i feel like it it looks more of a profession like a professional app and at, when that was ready i i I did a new. I sent out a press kit and sent out codes to different blogs and, you know, to announce the new, the new version of the app. Do you see that the press releases and stuff had a, a impact? Uh, a little bit, yes. I could see when these uh, reviews came out, there was a little increase in sale. But again, I have, I've always had pretty steady sales so it's i haven't seen huge spikes other than when the new versions come out Mm -hmm. when you add when i add big features then i always see spikes in the sales because i don't people find out about it and then i i I usually um uh, advertise it on facebook before on twitter i have a mailing list as well so I try to do all of this to create a little bit of a buzz before I um, put out a, a new version with some new features in it. Now, how often do you uh, email your subscribers? Because you said you had a list and stuff like that. How, how does your, what is your marketing strategy in terms of email? Because I'm always interested because I'm kind of learning and playing around with it. And a lot of people, I'm sure if they're listening to this, probably are on my email list and heard about it that way. So I'm always interested to, see, to hear how other people are doing their stuff. I do about, I would say, three or four times a year, not more than that. So you rarely do it. Yeah, I rarely do it because um, I rarely have, to to make a a new feature that is worthy of of such advertisement, it takes takes a couple of months of work. Yeah, and you only contact them when you have something big to announce. Yeah, because most of these users, they are already on, on, on... 
they are my users already. So I'm not trying to sell them anything new. So I don't want to really bother them with, the, you know. Yeah, because they're free updates. Yeah. And how do your users exactly. usually get in contact with you? Like if somebody has a comment or a question, like how do you take in feedback? I have a I have a contact form on within the app and on the website and um, people use that most. A, uh, people use that for the most part. Yeah, most people use that. Some people post on um, on Facebook or tweet me, but mostly is is through the contact form within the app. And um, I have a I have a, an assistant now that helps me about one hour a day answering all the email because there's about. 40, 50 emails a day, and, and it started to become time-consuming. So That takes a lot of a time, yeah. Exactly, and, and a lot of energy too, mental energy, because some people are naturally rude, so you have to deal with that. And So I, I hired somebody to help me with that, and she kind of filters out and, and makes a list of feature requests, and when something is requested a lot, then then I see, okay, maybe this is something I should look into. But ultimately, you have to decide for yourself. It's, it's your app and you decide because pe- often people ask just for crazy kind of things. They want the world for free. You know? they, they don't understand what it takes to, to add new features and stuff like that. So ultimately, you have to know the direction you're going into. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I think one of the most difficult questions that I know I struggle with all the time, and a, a lot of my listeners and readers do as well, is the pricing of products. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you decided on the pricing and if that's changed over the years or what your thoughts are there. It's a, it's a very, it's a very <clears throat> tricky question. Um, I think... If you if you do a niche app, you can still <clears throat> charge a good amount of money for it these days. Even though in general prices on the iPhone are going down to the bottom, everything is free almost these days. If you look for a weather app or a Twitter client, you can find <clears throat> free options for basically anything. So... If you try to compete within that general public sector, general audience sector, it's, it's going to be quite difficult. On the other hand, if you, if you are doing an app which is more of a niche app, you can, you can charge uh, a more valid sum. It's, it's, it's kind of a problem right now because people are expecting low prices all the time and and yeah it's it's funny if, if you go back five years people had no problem paying fifty dollars for an application on their mac and and now if they pay three dollars for an application on their phones they complain they, they, you know it's and, interesting how that changed and apple isn't helping at all because they've knocked down the prices of all of their applications oh, like yeah, they, to either free they, or they, super they, cheap yeah, free, including Mavericks. Everything is free, and it's and yeah, they're they're not setting a good example. Yeah, it's easy yeah. for them to do because they're selling hardware. If you're a software developer, it's a little bit more difficult. Exactly, they sell hardware. Yeah, that's the big difference. And yeah, and so it's 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 a bit of a struggle. Another issue now is uh, in-app purchases. And, yeah, that's um, huge. That's where people like that's where big applications are making tons of money. Like you look at um, yeah. What is that? The jelly, the candy, the candy crush, um, and heyday and clash of clans. Like it's all the in-app purchases. Yeah. And they make ton of money, tons of money. Have you ever thought about that for your application or how you might do it? Or do you think I actually, I actually do have in-app purchases. Oh, you do. Um, yeah. So there is a base price for the app on the iOS is eight bucks and then you can buy extra features which are more specialized like if you're a guitar player you can buy a, a, a guitar chord visualizer <clears throat> that tells you exactly the fingerings for the guitar and there's the same thing for the piano and for other features like that so you can buy extras and really that's the only way 
I have to keep um, having an income from the app because the app, I haven't uh, made a, a new version since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Basically, who bought it four years ago still has, can use the latest version of the app. I haven't done like, you know, if you buy Photoshop every year, you could buy the the latest version and and pay an upgrade free. There's no upgrade pricing in in the in the app store. <clears throat> that was a big question for a while: was how Apple was going to handle that, and now we see that it's just release a new version, release a new version, and keep the prices down. Well, yep. yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky. Yeah, because if you bought, let's say you bought Photoshop, Adobe has your email and they can email you the next year saying, hey, we have a new version and if you want, we give you a discounted price. I cannot email all my users. I don't have their emails and tell them, hey, I've made a new version. So, so Nor could I you give them the post- discount. Nor can I give them discount, exactly. So I, if I made a new version... Um, there's, I have no way of telling... All my users, hey, look, there's a new version, and and I cannot even remove the old versions because the people who download it, they they might want to download it again if they restore a phone or something. So it's it's there's a number of issues with this system. Yeah. But- so the only way really is is what I do is you know as I as I slowly add new features, I make uh, some of them. Uh, as in-app purchases and previous in-app purchases I make them part of the core features so I have this revolving set of, of in-app purchases that, that you know every six months or a year um, they come out as new and, and the ones from the previous year are now part of the of the core part of the of the app well, that's a good idea so it's just always a revolving like if you want to get be the first to get the new features, the first to get all the brand new stuff. You can do the in-app purchase. Otherwise, you have to wait and get the old technology type stuff. Right, exactly. And and so the whole user base is presented with this new in-app purchase, and and, and a number will will be interested. And that's that's how I I can keep having um, an income. Otherwise, it would stop after a while. You know. Yeah, definitely slow down. It slowly goes. Yeah, slowly goes down. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast today. So, Massimo, where can people find you? Well, I would say uh, irealpro.com. I, like iMac, realpro.com. That's the website of my main app, and there's a contact form there. Um, my company is called Technimo, so there's technimo.net as well, but you can find link on that previous website. Cool. And I'll put that in the show notes. And uh, yeah, I'm with uh, Novice No Longer. That's where you guys found this podcast. And uh, thank you so much for tuning in. And there you have it. Thanks for tuning in to the Novice No Longer podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please let me know. Go on to novicenolonger.com and leave me a comment. Or better yet, go into iTunes and leave a rating for this. Positive ratings really help more people find this podcast, so they're very much appreciated. And until next week, happy learning.